I'm your host, Michael Callahan, and wherever you might be now, this is where we go next. Gen Kimura makes documentaries and interviews on complex and controversial social issues on his YouTube channel. The purpose of the channel is, quote, to live courageously and authentically to inspire others to explore the unfamiliar. Gen, thanks so much for joining us today. Yeah, thank you, Michael. Uh, Looking forward to uh, this conversation today, man. I am too. On the mission statement you shared with me about your YouTube channel, and on your YouTube channel's description page, you write, quote, in this channel, we explore the unfamiliar by creating thought-provoking content. So what does that mean to you, the unfamiliar? Yeah, I think the unfamiliar can, I think, always start with the obvious, right? It can be topics that are maybe controversial in nature. You know, it can be controversial topics such as, you know, let's say abortion. That's like a video that I've made. But when I say explore the unfamiliar, that actually also encompasses a lot of things internally. So for example, I should be posting a video tomorrow on fear. So when it comes to exploring the unfamiliar, it comes with exploring a lot of topics that maybe a lot of people don't want to talk about, but also internal topics like fear, which is completely internally driven and things that we need to explore in order to become more of a well-rounded individual. Yeah, your videos are thoughtful, often vulnerable explorations of considerably difficult topics, some of which you just mentioned. Things like abortion, racism, trans identity, intelligence, and even a false sexual assault accusation that nearly cost you your college education. So I guess my question to you is, have you always been this open to talking about topics that many people shy away from? And what was the adjustment like to sharing so much of yourself in public on a platform like YouTube? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. Obviously, right, whenever you start something like this and, you know, venture into being like a public figure, I'm sure you probably have faced this exact same type of fear. But there definitely is kind of like an adjustment period in the beginning where you're putting yourself out there. So it can be very scary at times. I think ultimately it got more and more comfortable the more videos that I've done. But when it comes to that first part of your question, when you're asking, were these things that I was always talking about? I think I was. A lot of these video ideas that I get are actually not from like me just sitting down and brainstorming, but actually just like conversations that I have with like my friends, family, and maybe even strangers that I meet. So I think I've always had this natural inclination for curiosity. I firmly believe that's like my biggest strength. Naturally, I would talk about these types of topics because that's what I wanted to talk about. And now is kind of just hunkering down and actually putting more thought into it and then, you know, making like a public video on it. Were you like that, that kind of inquisitive person who was interested in talking about potentially provocative topics? Were you like that ever since you were a child? And was there anyone who influenced you to kind of act that way and pursue those lines of questions where other people might not? When it comes to like an actual inspiration, that's something I was thinking about too, because I think one of my friends asked me that. But no one like really comes into mind when it comes to who's really inspired me to talk about these types of things. But I think always as a kid, I, I've always had this natural inclination and, and curiosity to want to talk about these types of things. So it's always come naturally, I guess. In that same mission statement about the channel that you shared with me, you write, quote, in a world of polarization and snap judgments, we want to normalize learning from different perspectives because it's the only way to become a well-rounded and grounded individual, end quote. This core value, I think, is clear in your videos, especially the quote-unquote, man-on-the-street ones, where you talk to people of often incredibly opposing backgrounds, either Republicans and Democrats, Stanford students and students from a local college nearby, pro-choice and pro-life advocates. And one of the reasons I was drawn to your channel in the first place is that it seems to be going against the grain of our larger cultural movement, so to speak. Every major news publication has run some variation of the America is on the verge of national divorce or more Americans than ever are worried about a civil war. 
because poll after poll, study after study is telling us that we're more divided than ever. So what's your experience been like on the ground making these videos? And is there any weight to these rather alarmist news narratives about the fate of our country? Yeah, that's what a great question. I did not want to believe the news, but yeah, there are some instances where I think, wow, maybe we really are as divided as we think. That is one train of thought that I have sometimes doing these interviews, especially when it's someone that I think I really oppose. But I think one one of the biggest things I did realize, though, at the same time doing these interviews is that we're actually all 99% extremely similar. You know what they say, right? How Democrats and Republicans, they all want the same things, but there's just different ways to achieve it. So I think it's kind of like an extreme answer in the sense that, yeah, there are some times where I'm like, wow, maybe we really are divided as we think. But I think once we get to them and get to the core of their beliefs, I think we can both understand better that we're actually a lot more similar, even if we fundamentally disagree on on a topic. That's a really interesting point. And we're going to actually dig into what you just said a little later in the interview, but to kind of tease at it now, my question is, as a creator, right? If you're interviewing people on the street and you're trying to get opinions on, let's say, a controversial topic like abortion, and based on what you just told me, people are more similar than they are divided, maybe even on a hot button issue like abortion, or we could take one that's not as hot button, like college education, and maybe people are more similar than they are different there. And you may have that experience interviewing people on the street. As a creator, are you incentivized by things like social media algorithms to not feature that content that showcases how similar we are and rather showcase the hottest takes that showcase how different we are. And I'm not placing any blame on you here. I think we're all kind of victim to the pressures that are happening algorithmically to us. But is there a tension there between what you see on the ground, how we might not be that different from one another, and what you're incentivized to include in your videos, which maximize difference in order to get as many views as possible? Yeah. No, that's, I think, a constant reminder that I have to make to myself. And that's what's been extremely helpful about defining a mission statement for the channel to continually remind myself every clip, every second that I put in the video should be feeding into that mission statement. And what I'm actually extremely grateful for is I do have a team that keeps me in check as well as an audience that keeps me in check as well. One example is, let's say like that abortion video. There was an instance where I thought that I was making fun of both sides equally, but there is one instance where I think I went a little bit overboard on making fun of the pro-life side. And a lot of my audience members called me out on that. And I'm extremely thankful that I have that type of audience where they feel that they can keep me in check when I'm straying away from my mission, as well as the team members that tell me that as well. And yeah, I think like to address your question, do I have that pressure? Without a doubt, right? I mean, ultimately, I want to grow this channel and, you know, get as many views and subscribers as possible so I can fulfill my mission statement and inspire others to explore the unfamiliar. But I think one thing that I've just realized and one thing that I keep reminding myself is, is that something like this, where I'm exploring both sides equally as much as possible, it's going to take a lot more time to grow it. But I'm fine with that. I think what I'm continually trying to evaluate is like, what is the quality of my audience instead of the quantity? making content that reflects that, which focuses on quality instead of the quantity or the most controversial takes, is a delicate balance that I'm still trying to figure out, obviously. For example, right, let's say like TikTok. I think that's a platform that extremely, extremely rewards controversy. So that's obviously not my main platform, but I also see it as a necessary evil in the sense that, hey, if this clip can actually get the audience members that I want, that want to hear both sides and want to explore these different perspectives then, hey, that's a necessary evil or a game that I may have to play with. 
But when it comes to, let's say, my YouTube content, that's something I definitely don't want to compromise on because then what good am I doing to that mission statement? Right. Like you might take the spiciest clip from a longer YouTube channel, post that on TikTok as almost, for lack of a better word, a kind of bait. Yeah. So the TikTok viewers like, oh, this is spicy. And then they go to your YouTube channel and to use some parlance of the internet, white pill them into realizing that maybe things aren't as spicy as TikTok makes them out to be. Yeah. And, and that actually makes me happy too, because you know, on the opposite end, in fact, I got a message yesterday of this person who saw one of my clips on Instagram and made a story thereafter saying to cancel me and report my channel because of this clip and I'm misgendering this person. But what I did afterwards is just calmly like send them the link of the full video and say, hey, you know, you're, you're totally entitled to your opinions and perspectives, but this is actually the mission of my channel. If you want to still arrive to that conclusion, that's your right, but I sent them the full video. I don't think she ended up watching it, but sometimes I do have those instances where they make those snap judgments off of, uh, let's say, a 10-second clip. Yeah. And what you said about how your audience keeps you accountable is a really interesting observation because I feel like audience capture can be something that a lot of creators, whether it's on YouTube, TikTok, Instagram, Twitter, et cetera, can become kind of beholden to without even realizing it, right? I had a guest who I've had on a couple times. Her name's Brittany Talissa King. She's a YouTube creator who talks about, I think, similarly potentially provocative topics around race and identity. And one of her videos where she was commenting on Jordan Peterson and her views on him, I think this was sometime in 2021, got, I think, a couple hundred thousand views. Her YouTube channel usually gets maybe 20 or 30,000 views per video. And that one just totally spiked. And one of the things I asked her was, you know, as a YouTube creator herself, does she ever feel that kind of internal pressure? Like seeing that golden ticket, right? Unwrap the chocolate bar and you're like, oh my God, if I just keep making videos like this and maybe I'll just keep making more videos talking about Jordan Peterson because her perspective was kind of interesting at the time. She's a black woman and she was a former head of a BLM chapter. So she was talking about her perspective, looking at him through that lens. And I think that kind of mixture of black woman, former BLM, Jordan Peterson created this like algorithmic cotton candy that just went totally viral, right? And I think there is a lot of pressure that is incredibly hard to resist for creators who are talking about these things where it's like, oh man, if I want to grow my channel as quickly as possible, just like light a fire under the rocket, if I just lean into this stuff, then I'll get bigger even faster. But what I've noticed is when I track channels that do that very thing, their comment section becomes a reflection of the content they're creating. So then if they want to then go, okay, I've done my viral stuff. Now I want to get into more broader topics, more nuanced stuff, more left and right, as opposed to all left or all right. You see their audiences start to rebel against the nuance because they've cultivated their audience to like shock, to like our side against their side. So if you create an audience that only wants red meat and only wants us versus them, if you then try to expand beyond that, your audience will either abandon you or attack you. And so it seems like audience cultivation has to be a step-by-step -step process, lest you get out of step with your audience and they get angry at you. Does that make sense? That makes a complete sense. And I think that's why exactly I wanted to define what my mission statement looked like so I can make sure that I stay on track. And I think that's actually you know what happens to probably a lot of these big mainstream media outlets. I'm sure they had extremely good intentions when they started. CNN or Fox News, they're probably like, we want to be an objective news source that provides the facts. But obviously, right, that hasn't happened. And it's because it's a delicate balance that we were talking about earlier is that in this social media space, views and attention is a currency. 
it's so hard to stay neutral sometimes when controversy is rewarded in the algorithm or, you know, your audience is saying that they want this type of content. I think you just got to really like make sure that you're staying in check and having a team that really makes sure that, you know, you're staying on top of that. So I think it really is like that delicate balance that I think only very few have been able to successfully accomplish. To kind of swerve a little bit, there's something you said in one of the videos I mentioned at the top, quote, how a false accusation almost ruined my life, end quote, that strikes at a theme of your channel. I believe you say, quote, that's exactly why you should never believe all women or believe all men. It's a mistake to believe all anything. There's always two sides to every story, end quote. And I'd love to explore that a bit with you. I want to tie it to a quote from that mission statement we've talked about where you write, quote, there may be no such thing as objective truth, end quote. So can we unpack what I think is a bit of a tension here? Because I can understand how there may be two or more sides to issues that are political or cultural or social in nature, things like tax policy, immigration, criminal justice reform. But when it comes to if an event did or didn't happen, as just one example, right? Like what happened to you, the false accusation that happened to you, there is such a thing as truth, right? Mm. <laughs> yeah, dang. Uh, I guess uh, I guess my own words are biting me in the ass right now. <laughs> no, I, I don't mean it that way. <laughs> no, no, no. That's great. But I think it's an interesting topic because I think that for a lot of our social issues, there isn't necessarily one truth. But I think that what gets dangerous is that there's this kind of prevailing statement out there called my truth, right? Right. And I think when we start throwing that word around, truth, 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 my truth, your truth, it starts to muddy the waters, which I think can lead to events like, well, you know, Gen says this thing happened and I said this thing happened, but that's my truth and that's his truth, right? And I think there is a real importance to truth finding about whether events did or didn't happen that is distinct from you have a view on abortion and I have a view on abortion and that's two sides. Yeah, totally, totally. That's a phenomenal question, by the way. I think for me, the reason why I ended that video with that message is that ultimately, although I know what happened in terms of like my side of the story, she also had probably has that conviction as well. And, you know, obviously I don't really know her intentions and who knows what she was going with that, right? But I think what, what I was trying to say with that last message and how that may potentially conflict with that mission statement that I have, <laughs> you know, the reason why I also wanted to present that video with like that Johnny Depp and Amber Heard story, one was because of the cultural relevance behind it. But then also in the sense that, you know, both sides probably had some sort of like responsibility in what happened. That's actually exactly how I view that event in terms of my personal story. Of course, I know what I did and, you know, I didn't do what she's accusing me of, but I'm sure I absolutely have some culpability in whatever happened. And I choose to view that event that happened as my responsibility in the sense that, hey, you know, this was a girl that I also had in my life or brought in my life. This was the type of person that I was attracting in my life. So I think whenever I say like, there's two sides to every story and each side has their truth. I think that's what more I'm leaning towards in the sense that whatever happened, you know, there is a fact and a false, but whatever led to that fact or accusation is also some sort of responsibility that I and her have. I don't know if that breaks it down better or not, but it does. It's acknowledging that objectively there is a truth to events, right? Like what you're saying, if I understand correctly, is there's a difference between objectively looking at the facts of a case and taking accountability for why someone else who's part of those events might feel the way they feel about how those events transpired. Right. You said it better than I can. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's easier to summarize than to state something, but I'll take the credit where I can get it. <laughs> Speaking of the line, 
between truth and opinion? Have there ever been conversations you've had with people that are either too honest or too offensive to publish? No. No, because I think one of my values that I wholeheartedly believe in is honesty. So with that, my mission is to explore all perspectives. So that means like one of my dream interviews is to interview an extreme white supremacist or maybe even extreme black supremacist or an extreme Asian supremacist. My mission with the channel is to be able to collect all perspectives, not just like the mainstream perspective, but even ones that I vehemently disagree with. In fact, I try and give voice to those types of people because I think the common rhetoric today is to, why are you giving this person a platform? I think that actually the best solution is you should give everyone a platform. So in that sense, you can decide on your own whether you want to continue listening to that person or not. I think when we are silencing voices, especially ones that we disagree with, you're doing yourself a big disservice in not being able to really understand where that person is coming from and being able to make the most informed decision if you actually disagree or agree with that person. Yeah, I agree. It's a delicate balance, right? Because on one hand, you don't want someone spamming the N-word in comment sections on YouTube. Right. But on the other hand, when it comes to discussing about ideas, the thing that scares me about people who are really quick to deplatform people who have quote-unquote offensive ideas or the reason that I get really worried around the idea of hate speech is that what is considered hate speech is often defined differently depending on who you ask, right? So I'm old enough to remember that, you know, in the late 90s, the people who were deciding what was moral and immoral was people on the right. You know, there was something known as the moral majority. Newt Gingrich was in Congress. Although Bill Clinton was the president, he seemed to be (laughs) kind of going with the flow of the Republican-controlled House and Senate. And it seemed like the people who were wanting to ban rap albums and talk about content for children on TV were all coming from one direction, right? So if those people were in charge in 2022 and they were the ones defining what hate speech was, I imagine they would have a much different view of what hate speech is than, say, people who are in prominence in culture and on social media today who are largely on the left. So I think when we start trying to define what hate speech is and banning people for hate speech, (laughs) it can get into really dangerous territory because one man's hate speech is another man's freedom of expression. Right, right. Yeah, no, I I mean, I totally agree. In fact, as you're saying that, I'm kind of curious if I can flip a question to you. Sure. Since I'm guessing that you are, uh, you know, older than me and you've probably seen these different eras. I'm curious, like, do you feel like this shift has been happening because (laughs) Americans are bored? Do you think like this right to not be offended is is a thing that's been born because we don't actually have these real problems, quote unquote, that other third world countries may have? Do you think we're just bored? I think there is some of that. Like I had on psychologist Scott Barry Kaufman, I think episode 20 of the podcast, and we talked a decent bit about Maslow's hierarchy of needs, you know, the hierarchy, and I'm loosely remembering it. It was like almost two years ago now. Basically, the base needs that you have are things like shelter, protection, security, food, et cetera. And then only once you establish like those base things in a society can you start thinking of things like philosophy, right? It's the reason that philosophy started in ancient Greek societies because those societies at the time were some of the most developed. They had a lot of those basic needs, at least for the upper class, met. They didn't have to worry about day-to-day about food because they already had agriculture, right? So then the elite could then start, you know, writing and thinking and building If you're worrying about having to hunt down a gazelle every single day, you're not going to have a ton of time to write literature. And I think that American society, because of how advanced we are, even though we are struggling with issues like poverty and need, in terms of all of human history, we are at the most advanced and the most safe and the most plush living situations. And so I, I do think there is some of that. But I also do believe that 
<laughs> I talk about this so much, I probably sound like a broken record to the listeners, but I do think there is a lot of it that is being driven by social media algorithms. And it's like the tail wagging the dog, right? So much of what we think, believe, want, don't want is all driven by the advertisements that are fed to us on social media, whether they're overt or covert, right? It could be someone you're looking at on Instagram, an influencer, right? And she's wearing a really nice looking dress. And you're like, wow, she's my favorite influencer. She looks nice in that dress. Maybe I'll look nice in that dress, right? Unbeknownst to the viewer, that dress is part of a sponsored ad. And that woman is wearing that dress for free in order to get $10,000 to wear that dress. And I think that a lot of that also applies to our political beliefs as well. We're in this incredibly tribalistic system in which there's an us versus them dichotomy. When, as you know very well, no one is all one side or all another. I recently was talking with Isaac Saul of Tangle News, right? In the sort of same vein of what you're trying to do, which is make more nuanced conversations around hot button topics. He covers it in more of a straightforward news way. He's a former reporter for mainstream news organizations like MSNBC, Huffington Post, Fox, etc. And he's trying to disentangle these us versus them narratives and show people that it's actually much more complex than that. But social media, in order to get as many clicks as possible and get as many retweets and likes, is incentivized to saying, these are the good guys, these are the bad guys, which side are you on? Now, who the good guy and who the bad guy is depends on which state you live in, how red your district is, what your feed is telling you. But this Darth Vader versus Luke Skywalker drama is, I think, a lot of it, right? So then it creates these situations, and I'm not going to take any culpability away from the people who stormed the Capitol, right? But I do believe that people like that, people who stormed the Capitol, people who are calling for people to be canceled from their jobs or you know, deplatformed from all social media, depersoned, I think all of these people, regardless of what side of the spectrum they're on, are all being driven by this invisible hand that is radicalizing us. You know what I mean? I think it's a huge problem. I don't know how to solve it. <laughs> but one of the reasons that I wanted to reach out to you, that I reached out to folks like Isaac, to Michelle Carroll, who was also a former guest of this podcast, is I, I really respect, not to get your ego too big again, I really respect the kind of work that you're doing because I really feel like you're salmon swimming up a really strong current. Right. Thank you. Yeah, I appreciate that. And I think this this kind of ties into what exactly we were saying earlier, right? I'm sure Isaac or Michelle that you just mentioned, they also have probably seen that dichotomy or kind of decision that they have to make on a day-to-day basis of what are we going to prioritize our mission or being able to expand our reach. And I think the biggest piece that I came is that, yeah, I am a salmon swimming up a waterfall. It's going to take a lot more time. But I think once you're able to kind of ground yourself that way, And it's a constant reminder. I think it becomes more of a fulfillment. And also, you know, you're allowed to have more patience with yourself in the mission. To kind of swerve a little bit here, how do you keep your composure when talking with people who have repugnant ideas, ones that may even personally demean you because of immutable characteristics, like when you were talking with the black Hebrew Israelites? (laughs) You know, I'll link it, I'll link it in the show notes. But um, if you're familiar at all listeners with what the black Hebrew Israelites stand for, you can probably guess. But I mean, whether they're saying things that are just totally racist, bigoted, repugnant, or maybe you're dealing with someone who might be going through some kind of mental crisis, and you might fear for your safety, like, how do you keep your composure in those situations? Have you ever felt unsafe? What do you do? Yeah, I think the first thing that came up to my mind when you were saying that is also a lot of working out. <laughs> I also try and make sure I get some sort of sweat in before I go and do those interviews because it allows me to you know, have that calm and collected mindset and approach when I do these interviews. So I think that's first and foremost when it comes to, I guess, taking care of myself. But I think the biggest thing is empathy. 
just genuinely being curious and not shifting my mindset to be like, oh, well, why is he saying this? Well, how could he say this? But instead, like approaching these interviews with like, okay, let me just try and grab as much perspectives and really understand and understand the core of their beliefs. That has been the mindset that I go into each and every single interview. So even if they do say something that I agree with to my bones, or they are saying some things that I think, you know, is a bit racist, I'm able to kind of have that collected and calm mindset because my approach isn't to get them or my approach isn't to get the best sound bites to to make that controversial video, but instead to be able to gather as many perspectives as possible to provide the most balanced take based on those interviews that I do. And another thing is, is I think it helps in terms of the creative process, because whenever I make these videos, the street interviews is really central because I take whatever sound bites that I think will make a really good story, plus being able to provide them as many perspectives as possible. And that allows me, you know, once I cut it up and organize it, that's essentially how I form my stories. That's essentially how I start building out the commentary that I provide in between each of these interviews. So the street interviews is extremely critical to the story building process. So I think it's a combination of working out, um, coming in with an approach of just gathering information and taking my ego out of it. And then also realizing that, hey, these are the interviews that I need to be able to provide my balance takes after, you know, digesting it and in the comfort of my own room. When you're off camera, when you're just in your personal life, right, away from social media and YouTube, how do you personally deal with offense, right? Like when someone says something that hurts you or offends you, either someone who you know deeply or a stranger on the street, because the thing that comes to mind is there's this one YouTube video you did, and I know you've done a couple on Asian identity, but there's this one where you're talking about a white woman who was driving by and like yelled a racist slur at you and your friends, right? Now, obviously, you talked about that on camera. But in instances where it's not on camera, you're just having to deal with it personally, or maybe it's something a friend has said, a political view or a social view that's offended you. How do you deal with that? How do you internalize it? How do you work through it? Again, it's that approach of empathy, right? Because I've been wrong thousands of times throughout my life, and I'll continue to be wrong. And in fact, I hope I continue to be wrong because that means that I'm growing and, and actually learning and challenging myself. But then also another aspect of that is really discerning whether it's constructive criticism or someone who's just an unhappy, unconfident person. I think that's kind of been the best way when it comes to dealing with internet hate is, you know, Michael, I'm assuming you're probably not a person that spends their valuable free time commenting on other creators and leaving hate comments. If I had to put money on it, I'm guessing you're not that type of person because you're busy building your mission and talking to guests on this podcast. I think that's kind of been like the biggest mindset shift for me because I've never been someone that leaves hate comments on YouTube videos because I have shit to do. You know, I think people that are spending their time arguing on the internet all day and especially leaving hate comments on YouTube for lack of better words, they're kind of losers. So why would I want to allow them to impact my day, my mood, and how I show up in the world when these are people that are unhappy, unconfident people? Happy, confident people are lifting other people up. And even if they disagree, they're able to have these collective calm discussions to really understand where other people are coming from. Only unhappy, unconfident people are the ones leaving comments and leaving hate out in the world. I think that's largely correct. I think that a lot of people who say mean and hateful things are operating from a place of pain that is usually disconnected from the person they're talking about in such horrific terms, right? I can come up with a few instances from my own life, but the one that's the most impactful or the one that 
I think sums this up the best is back when I was in film school, I'm half Armenian descent. My great grandmother and great grandfather survived the Armenian genocide and came to America in 1920. So I'm not super culturally Armenian. I'm fourth generation now, so don't ask me to speak any, but I learned those stories growing up. It's a part of my heritage, and it's something that is deeply important to me because I wouldn't be here without people surviving what they went through. When I was in film school, there was a fellow student whose parents were from Turkey, and I didn't really think twice about it because my parents were very clear growing up, and I'm very grateful to them for this, about saying, there's a difference between the people who perpetrated this against our ancestors and modern Turkish people walking around today. We don't believe in something as group guilt. There's no culpability for anyone who's existing today for what people did 100 plus years ago. Right. So don't go into any encounter with someone with that heritage thinking any of that, right? So I didn't. And we were friendly. He would invite me over to house parties, a lot of film school events. We were there together. And so I thought we were cool, right? Now, I have a last name that isn't Armenian. My mother's maiden name is Megarian. My last name is Callahan. That's my father's last name. And (laughs) I was on a friend's film set. I was helping him out. I was just doing some script supervising. Uh, This was at school, so it wasn't my main job, but I was giving him a hand. And at some point on the set, he made like a joke in passing because we would just rib each other. And he made some joke about me being Armenian or something, right? And I would rib him for his heritage and whatever. It was just something that, that we would do to one another. And so I laughed and he's walking by and this Turkish classmate, right, who's also on set helping my friend just immediately goes quiet and looks right at me. And he's like, you're Armenian? And I was like, yeah. And he's like, but your last name is Callahan. And I was like, oh yeah, my mother's maiden name is Megarian. There was like the longest pause in human history. And then he said, what are your thoughts on the genocide? And I was like, you mean aside from the fact that it happened? And he was like, well, you have to understand that you know, there was fighting on both sides and it's way more complex than that. And I could feel the blood just rushing to my face. And I had this moment where I was like, okay, either I'm going to let this feeling take over me and I'm going to do something that I'm going to regret on my friend's film set (laughs) and get this film set shut down, or I just have to walk away. And I just looked him right in the eye and I said, I'm going to believe my great grandmother's story over your narrative. I don't ever want to talk about this with you again. I'm walking away. And I never saw him again. He never talked to me again. And then I later heard from other classmates who had Armenian heritage that he would go up to each one of them, sometimes in the middle of class, and challenge them on the history of the genocide. And my point with this, again, and listeners, is that years later, he had this total mental breakdown and ended up being hospitalized for mental issues, right? Now, I don't know if those two things are connected, but my larger point is, is that I think when people are going through something like that, it's usually coming from some kind of deep pain. doesn't justify it. I certainly don't think he was justified in saying those things to me. The lesson I got from that was that oftentimes when people say those things, it has nothing to do with you. It has very much something to do with them. Absolutely. Absolutely. I couldn't agree enough. In fact, like viewing it from my own perspective too, right? Whenever I felt like very unhappy or unsatisfied with my life, I was probably doing the same shit in terms of criticizing people, bitching and feeling helpless. So I also understand it too, because I've been there. So I think that's where it comes from is that empathy and realizing that a lot of the things that we see evil in others is probably things that we dislike about ourselves too. And maybe things that we used to do in the past. So I try and continually remind myself I'm absolutely not perfect with it. But that's also helped me in terms of dealing with haters, as well as talking to people that I disagree with. Yeah, I think that's a really helpful perspective, a really healthy perspective, to be honest. These are great questions, by the way. I really appreciate that. From 
Your video, Looking for Love in the Loneliest Generation, you said in relation to finding love specifically, quote, what I realized is that I'm deeply afraid of looking stupid and that if I never commit fully, I don't ever have to say that I failed, end quote. That's a very human fear and one that I think we can all relate to in some way. I definitely relate to that. How do you balance that fear of looking stupid with a YouTube channel founded on authenticity, which by its very nature is sometimes going to involve you looking stupid? Hmm. <laughs> yeah, I think it's been a journey that's gotten easier the more I've done. I think it's just been, yeah, a lot of trial and error. And I think just becoming really comfortable with sharing a lot of aspects about myself. I think like the videos that I make today, obviously I wouldn't have been able to make in terms of, you know, editing content and how it looks when I first started. But I think it's also just been a lot easier to talk about the topics that I do now because of this journey that I've taken. So one thing that I've tried and focus on every single video is to at least become 1% better or make a better video from before. And I think the more and more I've crafted these videos and the more and more I've wrote, the more my thoughts have become clearer and the more I've been able to present deeper topics. So I think writing has helped a lot in being able to clarify these thoughts that have probably manifested itself over years in terms of some of these topics like talking about my father or talking about love. I think it's just becoming really comfortable with presenting all sides of me, whether it be the good, the bad, and the ugly. And that has just become a lot easier the more videos I've made. Did you have any kind of filmmaking background before you started the YouTube channel? No. I, in fact, my natural inclination was always YouTube. When I was even in fifth or sixth grade, I would make YouTube skits. <laughs> I had this channel called Genico, and I would make like skits with my neighbors and my friends. And you know that eventually stopped. And for years, I've kind of like neglected, I guess, this creative side of me that was just a natural inclination. Obviously, I wasn't making any money from YouTube when I was a, a fifth grader, but it's always something that I was naturally interested in. And actually, my first obsession was soccer. And I didn't even realize this until you know recently when I've really gone deep into YouTube is that even when I stopped making like those skits with my friends, whenever I would have a soccer highlight video that I wanted to send college coaches, I would spend hours hours editing on iMovie and just obsessing over it. So what I've always realized now, now that I've done this seriously, is that it's always been a natural inclination of mine that I've kind of suppressed and ignored because, like you just said, I was scared of looking stupid. Yeah, it's really hard to get over that hump, especially when you're making films that are oftentimes so deeply personal that are really vulnerable, I think, like a lot of the stuff that you're making. And it's been interesting watching your YouTube channel grow from the perspective of someone who has a filmmaking background like myself. It's like, I can look at your earliest videos and look at your most recent videos and I can see growth in terms of shot choice, your scripting, your editorial choices. What have you learned about filmmaking specifically as you've continued to grow the channel? It's extremely therapeutic. <laughs> it's extremely therapeutic in the sense that, like I said in the beginning, Explore the Unfamiliar is talking about topics that people may not want to talk about, but also looking inwards in yourself and exploring the unfamiliar things like trauma, fear, and confidence issues. I think writing is probably one of the best forms of therapy. And I think on top of that is probably making an entire film about it. So in the process of having these thoughts when I'm having conversations, from ideation to scripting to actually executing on it has been an extremely therapeutic experience that has you know, paid 100 times dividends when it comes to improving my confidence, my comfort, and just knowing myself better. 
I think that's kind of been the biggest realization through filmmaking so far. I think the best art comes from anyone when you're able to live that experience and live your life through your art. And also when it comes to authenticity, right? You can only be authentic when you can actually speak from experience. And I think what I've realized through at least the type of content that I make is that I'll never run out of ideas as long as I'm continuing to live the life and continually having new experiences. To sum it up, I think the biggest thing that I've learned through filmmaking is that the best type of films come when you're able to speak from experience. Who are some of your creative influences, either YouTube creators or documentary filmmakers or otherwise? My biggest inspiration, and I think someone who I would love to do a similar thing, is Anthony Bourdain. And he really explored me. I mean, God damn it, his TV show was called Parts Unknown. And I think he had the best job in the world. Obviously, you know, internally, he probably didn't believe that. But I think Anthony Bourdain is an extreme influence of mine when it comes to exploring the types of places that a lot of people didn't want to go. He wasn't like a lot of the corny travel hosts going to like the most popular destinations like a Barcelona or let's say London. He was going to like the most obscure places like Bhutan to rural Japan, let's say. So I think he really influenced me a lot in terms of the type of videos that I want to make, but then also future outlook in the types of films that I want to make internationally as well. And then when it comes to YouTube creators, I got to say, yeah, probably the biggest influence of mine was Sneeko. I know recently he's been (laughs) canceled off the YouTubes and a lot of social media sites. He was actually one of my biggest influences when it comes to starting, when it comes to topics that I wanted to cover, as well as maybe even creative influences as well. So it's been interesting now because now we're like, I'd consider him someone who's a friend and someone I know personally. And it's been interesting because I first interviewed him when I was around 300 subscribers. And then very recently in my most recent video, I even visited him in Miami and we got to spend some time together. So it's been interesting how just starting through this YouTube and I guess, you know, being able to hang out with someone that I was actually inspired by and now becoming someone that I consider as a peer and a friend. I think you've done two interviews with Sneeko now, yeah? Yeah, that's right. It's interesting to hear your perspective about how you see yourselves as peers in terms of your style or in terms of what you're creating as YouTubers, because I'm not hyper familiar with Sneeko's content, but I'm familiar enough. I guess I don't see it. Like when I see Sneeko's content, right? And for anyone unfamiliar, I don't even know how to describe him in a short period of time, but I see him as more of a provocative, almost Andrew Tate-esque figure where he's more doing really long Twitch streams or YouTube commentaries that are sometimes hours long, right? Not hyper edited, like the kind that you make. And I don't necessarily think as thoughtful, I don't want to take anything away from what you see in him and what inspires you about him. But it feels like a lot of what he's been doing and why he was banned from so many social media sites is he seems less interested in nuance and more interested in just trying to blow up as quickly as possible, grow his channel through provocation where it seems like that's the opposite of what you're trying to do. So where am I wrong? What am I getting wrong about the connection between you and Sneeko? Yeah, so so I'm assuming you first started hearing about Sneeko through his streams, and I guess recently in the last six months, right? Yeah. Yeah, so, you know, before he got into the streams, he was exploring a lot of these things through his one-minute podcasts, where he was set up, I guess, like a table in the New York City subways and asked people and gather perspectives in these street interview type videos. Uh, to a lot of people that know Sneeko now, and I guess the Sneeko that I was inspired by, I think it's very widely different to your credit because he used to make a lot of these highly edited, cinematic, thoughtful, thought-provoking content. 
But I guess I think how a lot of people view him now, and because this is the type of content that he only makes at the moment, is wildly different. It's interesting, too, because I was even talking to friends yesterday, and a lot of their view has been Sneeko clips on TikTok. But when he first started on YouTube, he was actually doing YouTube for like 10 years plus before he got canceled. It's a lot different, for sure. So I guess I was more inspired by the type of topics that he was creating. And then, you know, initially, right, you're inspired by whoever you're inspired by in your space, but then you ultimately develop your own style, which I feel like I've done. Yeah, it's it's a different Sneeko than I think how a lot of people view Sneeko now. Yeah, that makes sense. And I was totally unfamiliar with that part of his background. My follow-up question is, what do you think, just based on your own opinion and familiarity with the space, what do you think led someone like Sneeko to go from doing those more nuanced, layered conversations with people on the street and subways about these topics, I guess similar to what you're doing based on your own words, to the version of Sneeko that I'm seeing? And I guess my question is, could that happen to you? Like, is this a pipeline? Or is it something that can happen to creators even if they don't see it happening to themselves? What causes a Sneeko to go from the kind of man and creator that inspired you based on his former content to where he is now. Yeah. And I think like we talked about, right, this I think happens so frequently. And I can only think about a very few examples that I've been able to kind of tote this middle line. One, I think example is Joe Rogan. I think he's been pretty consistent ever since he started in terms of the views and the type of guests and audiences that is very diverse in terms of perspectives that he brings on. But to go to your original question, yeah, it can absolutely be a pipeline. I think what's been valuable in terms of viewing Sneeko and someone who I was inspired by and now know personally is taking the good that he's done, but then also being able to take maybe some of the mistakes that I've seen and making sure that I don't repeat what happened. Again, I keep pointing this back, but I think that's really the value of having this strong mission statement is that I'm able to continually remind myself, again, like I said, every clip that I put into the video, I want to make sure that the content reflects that. So I think it's one, having some sort of strong purpose that will continually guide the type of videos now and in the future. But then also, like I said earlier, having like a strong team that will keep me in check, having a strong audience that will keep me in check whenever I do stray away from it. I think ultimately what got him to maybe, you know, go the direction that he is going now is financial rewards are different when you kind of lean into one side over the other. And I think he leaned into that a little bit. And maybe he also got a little bit astray from the type of team members that he brought onto his team. I, I don't know him personally, so I don't want to speak on that. But he brought in a new, I guess, editor or kind of like a business manager that I think pushed him to go a little bit more extreme in his streams. And you can't really blame him. He went from, you know, when I interviewed him, living in kind of like the ghetto part of Brooklyn to when I now visit him recently in Miami, having like a two-bedroom apartment. So I think it's very hard when when money comes into play. But ultimately, you know, I, I consider Sneeko a friend and someone that I'm inspired by. So, you know, and whenever I do talk to him face-to-face, he seems like he is that same person. But, you know, I think he's going in a different direction that I, I don't judge or have any criticisms about. But it's definitely not the direction that I want to take my content in. Yeah, I hear you. I know the word systemic gets tossed around a lot, and I'm not a huge fan of the word just because it feels a little cold. 
I rarely fault individuals for their acts, especially in this space. Again, like I've said earlier in this conversation, I think we're all susceptible to the pressures of the forces outside of ourselves on social media, in society, et cetera. Just as a more benign example from my own life, I remember when I was making my thesis film at USC and I was trying to make this intimate character study based on some of my favorite filmmakers who were making like indie films on, you know, character growth and relationship dynamics. And USC, although I had a fantastic time, is much more geared towards setting up filmmakers to be mainstream artists, to get jobs making television shows and movies that are really big box office successes, right? When you make your thesis film at the grad level, you're assigned a faculty mentor who is supposed to kind of mentor you through the process of making your thesis from script development, pre-production, production, production, and post. And you don't get to choose your mentor. And the mentor who was assigned to me had been there for decades, a very well-respected professor there. And every single meeting we would have, every single time, he would just be like, I uh, I just don't agree with the script that you're writing. I don't understand why you're making it. This is a direct quote. He said, you're never going to get an episode of CSI with this is your calling card. I said to him, I was like, with respect, professor, is there anything that I've said in any of our meetings that would lead you to believe that I would want to direct an episode of CSI? <laughs> but I could feel the pressure from this respected faculty member I'm sitting across the table from in his office and he's telling me basically your script sucks. Your script is never going to get you work. You shouldn't pursue it, right? Now, to his credit, when I finally did finish the film without any of his help, and I showed it to him, it was a meaningful moment for me because he, he watched it. I had to sit in his office while he was watching. It was a super awkward thing. But after he watched it, he looked me straight in the eye and he said, I was wrong. He was like, I didn't understand your script. Now that I've seen it, I get it. Wow. But for months, just hearing from him, like this, <laughs> this major figure, in the university who was saying, you're making a mistake, you should go this other way. I can only imagine what it can feel like when that's a million faculty professors via the social media algorithm that are constantly telling you, hey man, I noticed your video only got a thousand views. You know, it would make it get a hundred thousand views. Just made it a little spicier. Yeah, it's such a delicate balance. We're all influenced by something. So I think it's always a teetering balance of Defining what exactly you want, the type of content that you want, but then also listening to the constructive criticisms of people that you can truly trust. And then also deciphering the people that you actually can't really trust. Yeah, it's something I'm still actively trying to figure out. And I think one other thing that I want to note too is that, you know, I'm not a full-time YouTuber yet, right? I have other incomes at the moment that, you know, through through a job in which maybe I am able to take a little bit more risk when it comes to making the content that I want. But let's say when I am a full-time creator, am I going to fall into those pressures? Who knows? That's something that I need to actively keep in mind and balancing, you know, surviving and, and being able to feed myself, plus also making the content that I want and fulfilling the mission that I set out to do this damn thing in the first place. So I think that's also something that I want to keep in mind is that, you know, maybe I haven't fully been tested yet, but I'm confident that I will. And hopefully the perspectives that I've been able to build through not being maybe like a content creator since I was 12, will lend myself to chase fulfillment instead of just the dollar figures. Well, and the fact that you're so thoughtful about these topics, it seems like you're constantly thinking about it. The fact you have a mission statement that you could look back to if you ever start going astray, I think is all really important. To stay on the nature of filmmaking for a second, I can't remember who said this, but it's a quote that I remember from my film school days about the impossibility of documenting reality on film. The line of thinking goes, when a subject is aware 
that they're being recorded, the subject ceases to act authentically. Because in big and small ways, the subject will begin to alter their behavior, either to please the person filming or to portray themselves in a certain light for whoever they think might be watching, or they become self-conscious the moment they realize the camera's filming. So there's this idea across all documentary filmmaking, right? No matter how good a documentary film is, you can try and account for that, right? Like there's a famous filmmaker whose name I'm totally blanking on right now, who I'm going to hate myself for not remembering because he's one of my favorite filmmakers. His approach as a documentarian is he puts his subjects in a room and then like has the camera inside of a box and then he's in another room and he just has a microphone and he's talking to them and they just look directly into a box that's like obscuring the camera to even see. So there are all these kinds of different tricks that documentarians try and use to try and account for the fact that once a camera's present, the subject starts to act inauthentically. Can reality be captured when it's filmed? Can authentic conversations even take place when a camera's involved? When you're talking with someone on the street, are you going to be having the same kinds of conversations? Are they going to be giving the same kinds of opinions to you that they would be if the cameras weren't there? Yeah, that's a great point. My first instinct when you when you brought that up is I think I agree. I don't I don't know if you can capture complete reality when the subject knows that there is a camera in front. And one thing I was also thinking about is like at the end of the day, I can always make myself kind of like the hero in these videos, right? Especially if I'm editing it as well. I think that's also another element. Creative editing can really, really shift the reality in many ways as well, even if certain clips are captured. So my first instinct is I do definitely agree with that that it's probably extremely difficult to be able to capture complete reality, especially when you know that you're being filmed. And I think this has also been replicated as a thought in research studies, right? Isn't there like some sort of principle that essentially states that even with research studies, subjects will act differently if they know that they're being researched. So, you know, they have to account for that with placebos and a lot of these different control factors. But even then, are you able to really get the most accurate results? Who knows, right? I think it depends on the quality of the study, quality of the research. So I think where I'm going with this too is that with that, I'm trying to keep that in mind and making sure that I can make it as much of a conversation as possible. So whenever I do these street interviews, I always try and tell the people like, hey, you know, you don't have to look at the camera. Just make it like a conversation between you and I. Of course, you have a microphone that's being stuck in front of your face. So that might be nearly impossible. But what I try and do is to make the subject as comfortable as possible quickly and have them feel comfortable in the sense that I'm not trying to get them. I'm not trying to conjure up a certain response, but have the most authentic response as much as possible whenever I ask that question. So I try and account for that as a control in being as much of a competent interviewer that I can at that moment. But I think, yeah, there will always be some sort of constraints, especially especially if a camera is stuck in front of your face. I think one of the places in society today that is still a place where people can be really authentic, either authentically themselves in response or authentically themselves in delivering their points of view is stand-up comedy. And I know that stand-up comedy is an area where you're starting to dabble yourself. I'm not sure how many stand-up sets you've done so far, but I know that that's something that you're working on. So I guess my question is, is what has your experience been like beginning to explore stand-up comedy And can you draw any lines between the work that you're doing as a YouTuber, making this content, and your experience as a stand-up comedian when it comes to getting authentic responses from audiences? Yeah, I think you're right. I think maybe stand-up probably is the last bastion of, of authenticity. But even then, right, that's also being, I think, diluted 
when it comes to a lot of this cancel culture that's going on. I firmly believe that comedy should be one of the only things where anything should be talked about. You know, if you're going to cancel a lot of these different things and platforms, and I get it because, you know, content platforms also have to moderate to keep in mind of the advertisers. But when it comes to stand-up comedy, when it's live and it's just you and the audience, I think that needs to be one of the last realms that, you know, cancel culture should touch. But uh, yeah, no, stand-up has been great. I think there is a lot of similarities, especially when it comes to YouTube and stand-up. At the end of the day, YouTube is entertainment. No matter what subject I'm talking about, if it's boring for the viewer, they have millions and infinite different amounts of options that they can click on instead of watching my video. And I think stand-up is the exact same way, right? You need to immediately kind of win the audience's approval. Because if they don't like you, even if you're saying the funniest jokes, they're not going to want to listen to you. And I think it's the same way with YouTube and speaking in front of a camera. I think there's a lot of things that I was able to translate easily. So again, right, I've only done one stand-up so far. And actually, that's going to be in the video that's coming out this week, documenting my journey on that. But um, I think there's a lot of skills that I was able to carry over when I did my first stand-up set that I think put me ahead of a lot of people when it came to their first stand-up comedy set. Yeah, I'd say the one big thing that YouTube content and stand-up comedy have in common is it's all about retention. Yes. The big difference being as a YouTube creator, you might not know immediately. Now I imagine there are behind the scenes graphs you can look at in terms of how many minutes someone stayed on your video on average until they clicked away. So you have that data. But with stand-up comedy, you get that data in real time. You understand if you're retaining the audience every single second, joke after joke, you're like, all right, that joke retained the audience. That joke retained the audience. Oh, they're going to click away. That joke did not work. Yeah, no, it's been, it's been an interesting endeavor. And I'm so glad that I did it. And as, as you, you know, hopefully the audience will see is that the video is actually on fear and I talk about my fear of public speaking. And I think stand up is absolutely the pinnacle of public speaking. I think a lot of people would have to agree with me when I say that some of the top comedians are probably the best public speakers in the world. Like Dave Chappelle, Louis CK, George Carlin, all those guys have mastered the art of speech. And that's kind of why I wanted to challenge myself with it. And I think that, again, like I said, there's a lot of carryover when it comes to speaking in front of a camera and not getting the feedback real time. But um, I think stand-up challenges you because you're getting that feedback in real time. You're getting YouTube comments in real time. Yeah, YouTube comments in real time. Yeah, oftentimes as harsh as a YouTube comment as well. (laughs) Hecklers were history's original YouTube commenter. (laughs) There you go. You're Gen Z, you know, as someone who is making content about these hot button issues, about the topics that a lot of people are too scared to talk about with fellow members of your own generation, right? And we hear a lot of commentary from people outside of your generation, other people in my generation, millennials or older, who look at Gen Z with a lot of disdain, you know, pointing the finger at them for a lot of our societal ills. Although my generation was the one being called snowflakes yesterday, now it seems to be Gen Z and they're the ones ruining the culture. They can't take a joke. From someone on the ground, from someone of that generation, what is something that Gen Z is getting right around the topic of discussing sensitive issues and having nuanced conversations? And what is something they're getting wrong? I think I'm actually right on the cutoff of millennials and Gen Z. Mm. I'm born in 97, so I think it depends on how you define it. So I think I'm like literally on the cusp. So I've been able to, I guess, tell the line of both generations, albeit being a very late millennial or an early Gen Z. But I think I've been able to see, in that sense, uh, an interesting perspective or provide an interesting perspective. I think Gen Z has gotten right when it comes to talking about a lot of these, I think, mental issues and things that a lot was very suppressed in past generations. I think we're always going to make fun of the next generation. 
like you just said, right? I think millennials used to be called snowflakes. And I think we're definitely becoming softer and softer as a generation. But I think we always kind of have a doomsday outlook on the next generation. I think that's just kind of like a natural thing that will always continue to persist. But back to my point, Gen Z has got it right when it comes to being able to talk about these more sensitive topics that were suppressed in the past. But at the same time, what they do well can also become like their worst aspect. This might be controversial, but I think a lot of our mental illnesses that we say that we have are overblown. A lot of people lean into and use depression and anxiety as an identity, sometimes because I think people are bored and want this social currency that you can now get as being a victim. So I think Gen Z has done definitely a better job of having these more difficult conversations. But at the same time, we made a lot of these sensitive topics as part of our identity. So when someone disagrees with it, it's become an attack on identity rather than the topic itself. In that sense, we have definitely become more of a softer generation, but you also can't blame the generation on that because I guess things have been good. We're able to talk about these topics because we are the most advanced society in history. You know, we're the most prosperous, although we have a lot of problems. We are the most prosperous. We are the most safe society. So I think with that allows us to kind of talk about these topics in a deeper light, but we're also using that as our struggle and problems. And that's why I think disagreement has become such a evil and something that should never happen. To go back to what you said in there about identity and how the worry about how things like mental illness or anxiety or depression people start integrating it as aspects of their identity. This is something that is very personal to me because I've struggled with depression, you know, on and off for the last 10, 12 years, you know, through therapy, medication, et cetera. I think a lot of this is, again, driven by incentives, right? So if we go back to the history of America and let's say race and gender, right? Too often, people who existed within marginalized communities, either because of their race, sexual orientation, their sex, et cetera, your personality oftentimes to the broader society mattered less than your immutable characteristic, right? So you could be a woman who had the potential to be a great leader, a black guy who was really funny, an Asian person who, you know, could be the CEO of a company in the 1960s, 70s, 80s, et cetera, right? But your personality and your skills were often muted by your immutable identity to the broader, whiter majority of society, right? You could say like, oh, you know, I'm intelligent. I have a good personality. I'm funny. They're like, I don't give a shit. You're a woman. <laughs> There were these incentives that were operating against individual personality in favor of immutable characteristics. Now, obviously, painting with a broad brush here, there were, of course, exceptions. It wasn't that black and white. But I'm making that point to say, I think for all the progress that we've made regarding things like immutable identities and, and making more space for people of color and, and women and religious minorities and sexual minorities, etc., I think that we have maybe seesawed in that now people see, I think, as a result of that good project of saying, hey... Just because you're of this background doesn't mean that you're any less valuable. In fact, we should raise your identity up and celebrate it because for too long, it hasn't been celebrated, right? But I think that for people of a younger generation who are just now coming online, like as human beings and seeing this, they might be seeing it as, well, maybe my actual personality isn't enough, right? Like maybe the fact that I'm a funny, smart, creative woman or you know, an interesting guy who has a lot to say it doesn't seem like that is going to be enough to draw attention to me. So if the attention is now being focused on perhaps immutable identities, again, as a way to rectify past injustices, people might, because we all operate within incentive structures, people might all of a sudden be saying, okay, well, maybe it's not enough that I'm just funny. Maybe I'm funny and I have anxiety. 
it's almost seems like a seesaw reaction to the past right. in which your personality mattered less than your immutable characteristic, where now, because we're compensating for past injustices, younger people who are, again, just coming online now might be seeing, okay, well, maybe in order to validate myself and be validated by society, I need to have something within me that is bigger than a personality to justify my voice. Yeah, that's a very, very interesting take. And I think I agree with that. And I think it's just kind of like the common phenomenon that we see that any correction kind of becomes an overcorrection. And hopefully that eventually balances out. But I think you're spot on. I think the more I travel to outside of the country, the more I learn about America and how much we're the anomaly, although we like to think that other foreign countries are. You're totally right. I think now Americans are kind of too obsessed with race. I've heard that um, I'm actually going to Brazil on Friday and I've been talking to this person from Brazil and she also understands American culture as well. And one thing that she she's mentioned to me is that she thinks that Americans are too obsessed with race. And this is coming from a Brazilian, which is probably one of the most ethnically ambiguous and mixed country in the world. And that, that kind of struck me. I was like, yeah, that's, that's true. I think a lot of our discussions comes with our identities and, you know, they say like, you know, wow, you're a racist if you say you don't see color. But I think there is some sort of balance to that. If we're always obsessing about race, if we're always obsessing about our identities, you're totally right. I think it's creating an incentive structure where, you know, you can gain certain points based on your identity. And is that the best way? Does anybody like being a token in anything? I sure don't. I'd much rather be, you know, judged on my own merit and characteristics. But, you know, that's maybe a little bit too idealistic because as humans, we're obviously visual creatures and we obviously judge a book by its cover. I don't know. There is some sort of balance and I hopefully we're figuring it out in this overcorrection. Yeah, I hope so. I am always a little wary when people from other countries talk about our race obsession not that they're necessarily wrong, but like, let's take Brazil, for instance. Brazil is a very multicultural country. It has people of many, quote unquote, different races and ethnicities. But in the same way that I think if you went back 20 years in the United States, there would be a lot of people, let's say in the majority, either speaking of the cultural majority, the racial majority, et cetera, who might think in the year 2000, you know, like, oh, everything's fine. We're good. We've overcome our racialized past, Right. But I think it is easier when you're in a position of, you know, not to sound too woke, I think these issues are complicated. I think it's easier when you're not in a marginalized position to assume that everything is fine. But if we look at something like Brazil and we look at who's living in the favelas, who are the lower classes, where are the quote unquote no-go zones, where most of the violence is taking place, what is the visual appearance racially and ethnically of the ruling classes of Brazil? Brazil's history with slavery. I mean, damn, man, we're putting up points on a scoreboard. Brazil's history with slavery makes America look like rookie numbers. It's like <laughs> millions of people got trafficked over there. It's insane. Right, right. So again, it, it's not to throw shade at Brazil. I think every country is working slowly towards a more racially and ethnically equitable future. But it's like when people from Europe are like, we don't have any racism in Sweden. And I'm like, well, you're also like ethnically homogenous. <laughs> It's a lot harder. So I think it's it's tricky. I think we're not necessarily doing it perfectly here in the US. And of course, I don't think you're offering a critique one way or the other. I'm always wary when people who are not from our country make those kinds of comments, because I think that if all of our countries look inward, I think we all have a little bit of house cleaning to do. 
Oh, hundred percent. And I think I think you're spot on with that. I think the thing with America though is that I think our biggest export is culture. Yes. In the sense that at the very least, every country knows who the president is at any given year. Yes. And kind of like our problems and you know, mostly our pitfalls. Um, but we don't really see the issues of other countries, right? I, I bet you if you ask the average American, in fact, I've done this for a future video I'm making, if I ask them who the prime minister of, of the UK right now. I don't think many people will be able to answer that, although there has been a change recently. So there's that's probably some uh, aspect of that. But yeah, I think America, in a sense, we're under the microscope, but we don't really view or care about other people's issues. So I think that's true. I think that's true. We are decidedly self-centered, I think, in that regard. And I think that the culture that we're exporting, it's like in a way, in the same way that like Instagram, like when you look at someone's Instagram feed, you are seeing representations of their reality. You're seeing photos and videos from their own life. But if you then look at that Instagram feed and think you know everything about that person's personality, their life, their history, you're making a grave mistake. And I think similarly, when other countries are looking at us or when we're looking at other countries, we're kind of looking at their Instagram feed and then we're making assumptions about what their entire country is like when really we're seeing like a couple videos a day. <laughs> no, that's that's very true. <laughs> I think if you ask many people what, what you think about when you <laughs> when you hear the word Brazil, um, <laughs> I think it would be uh, three words. <laughs> Soccer, samba, and you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Maybe waxing. Yeah. <laughs> To wrap us out, Ken, and I've really enjoyed our conversation and I, I really value the work that you do. Oh, likewise. Thank you. I want to bring back a question that I have sort of semi-retired, a question that I asked each guest in the first 45 episodes of this podcast, because you've kept mentioning a word over and over again that I think is really key to the work that you do, and that's empathy. So I'm going to unretire this question for you because I think you might have an interesting answer. So as individuals, we're limited in our time our energy, and often in our capacity for empathy. Even the most well-intentioned and caring person can't be thinking of every person, every group of people all the time. It's just impossible. There's not enough time in the day. There's too many videos to make. Time is, is fleeting. We have too many responsibilities. So again, is there someone or a group of people in your life or in the world at large right now that you would like to take a moment and offer empathy to? Oof. Maybe this is a non-answer to your question because I can't really pinpoint a specific group, but I think the better approach in my mind when it comes to the question of empathy is to start with your own self-awareness. For me, I'd actually say that in the beginning, I wasn't an empathetic person. In fact, I think that's what I struggled with the most. But I think the biggest investment when it came to improving my empathy has been increasing my self-awareness. Because then once I can identify my own bullshit and pitfalls, I can see it in other people as well. So first and foremost, instead of focusing on or pinpointing on some sort of group, I think you just need to start with yourself and learning about yourself better because then you'll be able to see yourself in others. The final thing I want to say again, and I want to say this to the listeners as well, I think it is easier on social media to try and play to the algorithm and what the algorithm is telling you to do. The algorithm is like a riptide that can keep pulling you out to sea until all of a sudden you realize you're drowning in a sea that you didn't even know you were swimming in. So I just have a lot of respect for the work that you're doing again, because I think that you're taking really big swings in the pursuit of truth, in the pursuit of nuance, and in the pursuit, I think most importantly, to those other two, empathy. And so I would recommend anyone listening to go check out Gen's videos because they alter between the deeply personal, where he talks about his own family life, his own experiences with racism, with false accusations, 
and also talking with people from around the country and around the world about topics that are really important. And I think topics that a lot of us are thinking about, but sometimes too scared to talk about. So to you again, thank you again for your time. And thanks again so much for the work that you do. Yeah, thank you so much. I really enjoy this. Great questions. Hey there. If you're hearing this, you're exactly the person this message is for. I want to learn more about the Where We Go Next audience, which means I want to learn more about you and your thoughts on the show. So if you're listening right now, please send me an email at wherewegopod at gmail.com and let me know, one, what's your all-time favorite episode of the podcast and why? Two, what's your least favorite episode of the podcast and why? And three, where would you like to see this show go next? And hey, while you're here, if you're a fan of the show, it would make my day if you could give it a five-star rating and write a brief one or two sentence review on Apple Podcasts. It really does help. Thanks so much for listening. I look forward to hearing from you.